All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Thank you. Uh, we have a we have a bunch of men at a men's retreat. Uh, so some of them are out. They were. I went Friday night. It was wonderful. It's like the great weather to be out in the middle of nowhere. It's not so great to drive in the middle of the night that like it dark. It's just freaky as all get out. Like, but they're having a great time. We are in this series on belong, and today, if you want to jump to it, we're going to be in Mark 4, 35 through 41, but before we get started, I'm just going to pray. Father, we thank you. You're good, exceedingly good. We thank you for your word, which is alive and applicable to our lives. We thank you for the incredible sacrifice that is your son, Jesus. And how it is through his life and death and resurrection that your word takes its proper perspective in our lives. And Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that you're here and we're grateful. Speak to us today. Bring us words of comfort or conviction where they're needed. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to read this text. This is a pretty well-known story, Jesus' story, and we're going to jump in here to give a little bit of context. Jesus has been teaching all over the place, and and to this point in his ministry, there's been miracles that have sort of bridged the gaps between healing and and the, the casting out of demons, and, and there's all these sort of like realities of his authority that have sort of played out in his early life and ministry with the disciples. And so he's teaching. There's people gathered everywhere. Everywhere Jesus goes, a crowd gathered. And at this point, he's teaching from a boat. It's like a very, like, it, the crowd is pressing in. It's like, I'm going to get in a boat. I need to create some space. But he's still preaching. He's teaching from a boat. And it says, later that day, when evening came, Jesus said to them, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. So they left the crowd and took him in the boat just as he was. Other boats followed along. Gale force winds arose and the waves crashed against the boat so that the boat was swamped. But Jesus was in the rear of the boat sleeping on a pillow. They woke him up, the disciples did, and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? And he got up and gave orders to the wind and he said to the lake, Silence, be still. The wind settled down, and there was a great calm. And Jesus asked them, why are you frightened? Don't you have faith yet? Overcome with awe, they said to each other, who then is this? Even the wind and the seas obey him. This is the first sort of, of two miracles with, that involve nature in the book of Mark, that Jesus performs this miracle where nature listens to Jesus. So it's a crazy moment. But as I read this, I, it's, it's really easy to get lost in my own experiences with boats to create a narrative for what's going on. I'm not like a boat man. It's sort of like, I've, I do the boat thing, but it's, it's one of those things is like, I didn't grow up on the water, I didn't do this, but I, I've had some experiences on boats that are like weird. Uh, one was in Mexico, and I went, and we're going to go fishing, and it's a guy named Captain Ron, and he looks exactly as you imagine him, and acts more crazy than he should have. 
But he had this uncanny ability to make me feel very unsafe with all of his actions. And yet he seemed so like, uh, like disconnected from the realities of the sea. It was like, I'm Captain Ron, the sea's fine. And I'm like, ah, is it? Like, do you need to like do that? Like, I was waiting for him to reveal that he had a hook or something because of accidents. I just, he just looked like he would have had some severe issues on a boat at some point. But another one of those, I, I went out with a friend in Miami, and he had purchased a boat, but it was an aspirational purchase. Like, he, was, he wanted to be a boat person. So he's like, I'm going to buy the boat, and then I'm going to be a boat person. And so he was very meticulous. He was the opposite of Captain Ron. He was incredibly meticulous. He did the checks. He checked everything out. He put the fishing poles in the back thing. And we go out. And, and it was early on that I realized he's meticulous, but he doesn't, like, feel confident. We went under a bridge. Half the fishing poles snapped in half. And I was like, see, uh, you don't know stuff. And he was nervous the entire trip. And on the way back, he miscalculated and it got dark and it got dark fast. And he got nervous quick. And all of a sudden it was like, everybody be quiet, everybody be quiet. And, and I'm nervous at this point. And so when I'm nervous, I have a darker, slightly inappropriate sense of humor that comes out. Where I'm like telling, like his, his son actually, I'm like, yeah, your dad doesn't know what he's doing. We're probably all going to die out here. Um, but, but he did check all the levels before we got in this thing that took like 45 minutes, which we would have been able to use to come back into. Anyways, it was so anxious for about an hour or two. And I'm like, this is how you end up on an island. Like Gilligan's Island. Like this is like we're going to get lost. We're going to go out there. We're going to end up in Cuba. Who knows where we're going to end up. But we finally got back. And as soon as his feet touched the ground, it was like two things happened. He was relieved and he began to plan how to sell that boat. <laughs> as I think of this story, I can imagine a lot of scenarios for the disciples you can be like, oh, they're, they're, fish, they're, they're, like, they're fishermen, so they know boats, but they're going out at night, and Jesus asked them to take this huge risk because it's at night, and it's dark. And it's... But the reality is that they're on the Sea of Galilee that was in a basin, and that the winds would sweep in unexpectedly, and you would go from calm to storm in an instant. And actually, the fishermen would fish at night because it was the least likelihood that a storm would come up was in the evening. There was much more wind that would affect the Sea of Galilee in the morning and in the afternoon. So Jesus wasn't asking the disciples to take a risk. Jesus was saying, will you do what you've always done? Operate a boat in the evening. And so we find these violent storm out like calm to storm and the waves start coming in and it's it, and and the disciples are anxious and there's this disparity in the response of Jesus because Jesus doesn't have a response cuz he's asleep he's in the boat and he's laying down and he's asleep and i can imagine the disciples beginning to have the conversation of like this is bad 
the waves are here. They know what to do. There's, there's a couple fishermen in here. They understand this. There's other boats around. And they're freaking out. And then I'm sure there was like a deeper conversation of who goes and wakes up Jesus. Right? I, I, I'm not going to wake him up. Well, you wake him up. No, I'm not going to wake him up. You're the fisherman. I just do the, I do the money, man. Like, no, no, no. You wake. And they wake him up. And in the telling of this, we see that Jesus immediately speaks to the storm and the winds die down and the waves die down. He demonstrates an authority over nature that they have not experienced to date, which is this other kingdom moment of taking back places that the enemy has been ceded ground. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, Brandon talked about this. There's an understanding that the, like the enemy had these places and nature was part of it where we don't mess with it. And Jesus messes with it. And he says, no, you don't have power. And then he begins to speak to them. And he starts the conversation uh, this way. Why are you scared? Why has fear gripped you? That's an interesting question. Because the obvious answer is because we're drowning. But there's a deeper question here. The question is, if I am present and at rest, why are you freaking out? Because there's a storm. And I'm present and I'm at rest. But there's water coming in the boat. And I am present, and I'm at rest. Jesus is asking them, if you believe I am who I say I am, if you've seen the authority that I hold here on earth, my presence and my posture should be enough to know that you're not going to die in this. Because if you were going to die, then I would die. And I probably wouldn't be sleeping if I knew that was happening. Why? I'm not asking why are you afraid of the storm. It's obvious why you're afraid of the storm. These things are scary. Especially in the dark. Everything is a little bit scarier in the dark. No? I was thinking about the boat thing, and I was like, you know, for those of you that have never been on boats, like, what's the equivalent? And essentially, the only thing I can come up with is like a 1980s station wagon with the seats that look backwards. If you've ever sat in one of those and looked back on a road trip on a highway at night, that's what it's like being on a boat. Like you're just like, this feels very unsafe, and I don't know who designed this, but they were, they hate children. 
because you're, you're just like, you're seasick back there, and, you're, and then lights come up, and it feels like, oh, no, they're going to crash into us. And, and why, why did I get, there's six of us, why am I back here? Why am I the least valuable of all the children? That if there's an accident, you're the first to go. You didn't have airbags. Like they, they, parents like stuffed it with, oh, and here's the pointy sticks for the s'mores. We'll put those back there too so you get impaled. Bad decisions. He's not asking why, about the storm. He's asking about the way they see Jesus. He's not asking it in a way that is disparaging. He's asking from this profound level of not only curiosity, but invitation that you might trust me. That my interest in you and my heart for you and your place of belonging with me, in me, and in the kingdom is secure, even if you don't feel secure. And he goes on and says, don't you have faith yet? Don't you believe? And, and they're overcome with awe. They say to each other, like, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? He, he's shown that he has authority to teach, authority to heal, and authority to cast out demons. But now he's showing that he has authority over nature itself. We live our lives of faith often with really big experiences of reality of the kingdom and Jesus that hit us in moments. And then we could have a period of time where things happen in sort of the normal milieu of life, and then we'll have another experience that is revelatory. But in between those big experiences, and the disciples are having these big experiences, like one after the other, after the other, after the other. But in the short interim between watching Jesus with authority speak where thousands listen, and authority over the demons, and authority to heal, they have this moment of profound humanity where they're not seeing the active Jesus in a way that calms their anxious souls. And so they respond in fear. And Jesus is saying, you missed the whole thing, that in between acts and encounters, and acts and encounters, my presence is what sustains. That I'm not absent in the story between the big thing and the big thing, but I am present in between. I'm present in the big thing, I'm present in the mundane, and I'm present in the next big thing. Why are you afraid? I'm like right here. The invitation was, you see me at peace, be at peace. If I'm freaking out, you get to freak out. It says that they were in awe. I love what one theologian said about this. This is that the awe is, is that their fear 
in, are all stem from that somehow the divine had met them in and through Jesus. That they're overcome with the realities of Jesus. That, that the, the living God, creator of heaven and earth, is meeting them through Jesus. That the power of his words and his actions show that they are having an encounter with the divine. And in that power, he is with them in the storm. He's asleep, but the storm is not like just for them. It's not like those cartoons where it's raining over one person. It's not the peanuts where it's like always raining on top of Charlie Brown and everybody else is like in the sun. They're all in it together. And his power is there even as he's asleep. The power expressed in his sleeping is the peace to know that Breathe a second. This hurts, but it won't kill you. It's scary, but it doesn't lead to death. It's a storm, but it's not the end of you. But when their fear is winning, and they wake Jesus up, and, and this is the reality. We live storms in our lives. And the reality of those storms is that those storms, as we point to Jesus in them, are the big moments in our life that are revelatory. We very infrequently have a big revelatory moment in our times of triumph. Or do we? Like when everything is going well. Like it's all turning out perfectly. Every decision we make turns out well. This thing happens. We, everything's going great. That's not when we have the big experience with God. It's usually in the storm. Because when everything's going great, the temptation is to just be like, let's just enjoy this. It's going to last forever. And we do a whole thank you, Jesus. You know, we do hashtag blessed, you know. We get up and we accept the award and we're like, we'd like to thank God because he loves me more than everyone else. And, you know, like it's the whole deal. That's not where the big revelatory moment comes. It comes in the storm when we're freaked out. And when our faith begins to fail and we go, how did we get here? Where are you at? And what are we going to do? But when they're... These disciples, when their fear is winning, he is kind. I don't like to think about what I would do if I was Jesus then. I like to think about it now. Like, if I was Jesus, I'd do all these things to you. No. But Jesus is awoken because people are afraid. They're afraid because their faith is, is losing the battle to fear. They are afraid because they are, even though they've seen everything they need to see to have faith in Jesus, their fear is winning. And Jesus doesn't go, you idiots. I need my rest. If I'm asleep, you guys should be chill. And he gets up and he first deals with the cause of their anxiety. And he calms the storm. That's kindness. Kindness. 
And then he tells them what's going on in him and them and the world. But he also doesn't remove the threat of future storms. I would love this to be, and then Jesus said to the storm, stop, and then told all of the world in its existence, no more storms for my disciples. Say, here's your shipwreck, here's the big issues of your life, here's the big disasters, and by the way, you didn't have faith, but now you do, and now you see, so no more storms. He doesn't even say that the next time there's a storm, just call on me and I'll stop it like this. He says, if I'm at rest, so should you. What he does is he points to his presence in the storm as he expresses his power over it. He points to peace in the storm as he shows his power over it. He shows the promise that he will be present and bring peace in future storms even if he has power over it. He points to the disciples and says, even though I can stop the storm like this, if you encounter another storm, know I am with you. And there is peace, even if it doesn't stop the first minute you crack. I find that more comforting than a promise of no future storms. It's a paradoxical comfort. Because my reality and maybe just mine, but probably all of ours, is that there are more storms than we would like. And that between the experience of the presence of God coming to alleviate the consequences of a storm for the now and the next storm, a lot of life happens, and it doesn't always go the same way in each storm. There are moments where he speaks to the storm and it dies instantly. There's others where it rages and rages. But his presence that brings peace is the constant in each one of those scenarios. Belonging that we're talking about in the kingdom brings us back to the original intent of the garden. And if we look at the garden, we see this pattern of life between Adam and Eve and the Creator. We see that they would spend time together. They had encounters in the evening. They would walk and they would talk. They had encounters in the evening. But in the interim, from evening to evening, the presence of the Creator was constant. And there was communion with the Creator through creation and through the community of Adam and Eve together. And then there's encounters in the evening. But between encounters, they are not anxious about where the creator is and how the creator feels about them. They're able to wander and to wonder at the creation. They are able to explore and do the work of their hands. They are able to participate in the collaboration of caring for the garden without the anxiety of, where's the creator? 
And then comes decisions that lead to a change of reality and anxiety enters the scenario. And through the Old Testament, we see encounter and encounter and in between encounters, crazy amounts of anxiety. And we fill the gaps with community of other people that are having encounters with God that remind us of the faithfulness of God as we wait between encounter and encounter. And Jesus is saying, okay, community is part of this equation, but the communion part has been missing. The feeling of the presence of the living God in between has been missing. And in this, he's saying, that returns through me and what I'm about to do. That the communion, the daily communion and the Secure, security in knowing that the living God is present between storms in the mundane and the everyday. Which means that when the storm hits, I just look at where you are, Jesus. And if you're freaking out, I'll freak out. Jesus doesn't freak out, so we don't have to. But if I'm at peace, be at peace. If I calm the storm... You get to respond, but if I don't, know that I'm with you through it. There's a book that um, somebody recommended to me, sort of March, recommended to me earlier in the year and then said, but don't read it yet, wait. And um, I'm glad they told me that. It's called How to Survive a Shipwreck, and I think I'm going to stick it up here. And there's this section in it. Uh, It's talking about your faith will not fail even when you do. That's the title of this. And Jonathan Martin is talking about Peter and about how Peter actually fails miserably. Like he denies Jesus three times after he just like lopped the guy's ear off ready for war. And then like a couple hours later he's like, no, I don't know that dude. Like why is your knife like bloody. Oh, it's just an ear. Don't worry about it. It's fine. And here's what it says. Objectively, conclusively, decisively, Peter himself will fail before the rooster crows. The storm will get him. He'll lose his faith. It's already established at this point. But while Peter will fail spectacularly on the surface of things, there is something at work in him that is deeper than his failure. The waves will overtake the man and his blustering ego. But in the depths of the sea within Peter is a stronger, more ancient current that did not originate from him. A current that need not be shaken by his failure on the surface his faith. I prayed for you, Peter, that even though you will fail, and this is from Jesus, your faith will not fail. The tsunami will come and and take your self-resilience and your pride. Humiliation will wash over you. You will fail, but I have prayed for you. That your failure would not destroy your faith, but deepen it. 
I have prayed for you that the, the very thing that was intended to kill you will make the faith already planted in the deepest soil of you even stronger. It is possible, he says, to fail and not have our faith fail us. It is possible to lose our lives and not our souls. The master, teaches, taught us, master teacher taught us himself that it is only in losing our lives in their ego, pretensions, and posturing, in their careful image construction and neediness that this rather rich, deep, below-the-surface life can be found. What Jesus does with the disciples is saying, he's, you've lost your, yourselves, but your faith is intact. If you choose to trust, if you recognize my presence in the storm, more than you desire the power you have Jesus, to make the storm go away. We're asking the wrong question. The disciples asked the wrong question. The question wasn't, can you take care of this? The, the question was for them. How do I calm my own fear and anxiety to trust that the Jesus who is very present and at rest is inviting me to be at rest as well. That the storm that feels overwhelming and dark and like I'm dying and drowning will not destroy me because there's Jesus. Belonging is our ability, gives us the ability to see Jesus in the big storms and to recognize the communion and fellowship with him in the in-betweens of those giant experiences of the faithfulness of God that transform our very realities. It's the ability to be at peace when nothing makes us peaceful. It's the ability for the disciples to trust that the presence of God in the storm is more valuable than a quiet sea without the presence of Jesus. That it feels like I'm drowning, but Jesus is there and he's not freaked out. That his presence is the invitation for me to be at rest. paradoxical comfort. What the disciples wanted was the storm to end. And Jesus was kind and ended the storm. What Jesus wanted is that they would trust him. And they would look at him, not the storm. They would see the all-powerful living God on earth in human form at rest and say, then I will also be at rest.
it's the unreasonable confidence of the garden inside the ravenous realities of post-garden living. It is a secure attachment to the creator in a very insecure world. It is knowing that not only does the living God see us, but he knows us, he loves us, and he's got plans for our lives. And that in the midst of the chaos, Jesus is there. And he's not freaking out. The presence of Jesus is an unbelievably compelling invitation to rest. Have you ever been around somebody that, like, you don't know why, but every time you're around them, you're like, oh, you breathe a bit easier? You have that, like, and how different life feels when they walk in a room. My grandmother was one of those people. My grandmother is in her 90s now. I think she's 93. She got her first gray hair in her late 60s. And she had this, like, peaceful presence about her. I used to go fishing with her because she loved to fish in sort of like these creeks in Pennsylvania. And she'd like park somewhere in her Buick. My, it's a long story. My grandfather only bought Buicks, whatever. And she'd pull out fishing rods out of the back of the trunk. And none of them were snapped in half. It was, they were fully intact, not like the Miami dude. And we would walk back. It would take us like 15, 20 minutes to walk back to these spots, and we would fish. And I didn't like it. Because, like, you get dirty and stuff. Like, ugh. And, and she was, like, so at peace. And I didn't want to, like, why do I want to, I don't want to put worms on there. Like, come on. Like, we've got these styrofoam things of worms. It's like, what are we doing? Like, like you just go to the store and buy fish. Like, and then you'd catch something, and it's like, oh, great. Now i got to hold it and pull it. Ah. I was probably miserable to fish with. I think I still am miserable to fish with. Because it's one of these, like, peaceful, you do this, and you're like, oh, it's nature. And I'm like, oh, gosh, this is miserable. And, and here we are, just like, we just took a mom fish from the baby fish. And the, oh, great. And then we're going to send it back with trauma and, like, a hole in its leg, just so we can say, we, we won. Yeah, you won against the fish. Like, it's not a fair fight. Anyways. My grandmother had a peace about her that meant that all of my frustration, all of my anxiety, all of the stuff that I would experience around her felt very different when I mirrored where she was. My grandfather, I've shared about him, he was an important figure in my life, but until my early 20s, he was a, like a scary dude. 
And yet everyone in the family ended up at my grandparents' house multiple times a year because of the peace of my grandmother. Because in the raging storm that was my grandfather, there was my grandmother. Everybody pulled towards her. She, she brought with her, wherever she went, peace. She's been asked about that. She's still 93. She golfs three times a week. And she plays bridge with some friends. And she takes art classes. And she's like, she's like when my grandfather passed away, she got rid of the Buick and got a convertible Mercedes, a red one. Like, <laughs> and, like she shouldn't be driving. But she does. And so we've asked her, like, you know, what is it? What's, why? And she jokingly says it was wine and Percocet. But, um, but if you ask for a real story, she'll talk about the fact that she was orphaned when she was younger and grew up in an orphanage. And there were people of faith who, in all of her pain and anxiety, were places of peace for her. That in the being ripped away from natural family and the feeling of I don't belong and have no value and she found belonging and value. She felt seen and cared for by people of faith. And that the very real presence of Jesus brought peace to her in a way that allowed her to see the world differently. To see that the storm is raging, but go, it won't devour me because Jesus is close. That the anxiety of my weird grandkid who doesn't want to touch worms and, and traumatize fish is secondary to the moment we have that I can be present to. And that between the big revelations of the heart of God for people like my grandfather, there is a journey in between where Jesus is very present. And that there is the ability to commune with the living God. Jesus, who has power over nature, alleviates the anxiety of the disciples. And he invites the disciples to trust him. That the next time a storm hits, they can see where he is and that he'll always be present. And that if he's at peace, and he'll always be at peace, we can do. That if the storm is immediately stopped he's present and if it rages on much far much longer than we would ever hope for he's present that in his power to do it all the biggest gift is his presence through it all He invites the disciples, and I believe he's inviting us as we bring the worship team back up to respond to recognize where Jesus is in the storms of life and in the middle between 
storms, between big events, between in the day-to-day, where are you, Jesus? To recognize where Jesus is. To respond to the tone of Jesus. Like, what is he doing? Is he freaking out? No. Is he walking? Then I'll follow. Is he still? Then I'll be still. Is he at peace? Then I will choose peace. Is he doing something that I can follow? And then to ask. To become more and more aware of his presence. Ask to more quickly recognize what he's doing. And ask for the courage to follow. The courage to trust. The courage to believe that he is who he said he is. He does what he says he'll do. And that he is very present in the midst of the storm. And out of that, to experience the peace of communion with the living God that mirrors and resonates to the peace and security of the garden. Knowing that as I walk and do my work, as I co-create with the creator, as I explore in community all that is around me, the living God is present. He's faithful and he's going nowhere. Let's worship.